Amen. Amen. <laughs> and I just want to say happy Grandparents Day to you. Happy Grandparents Day. That's becoming more and more important to me these days. As we have more and more grandkids in our family. But uh, for those of you who joined us this morning, thank you for joining us uh, for Waffles with the Wise. Um, I know the body was edified, uh, built up in that way. But uh, do join us next Sunday evening at 6. We're going to have a cookout underneath the pavilion. And I hope that you will come and be a part of that and bring your family and, and just have a good time out there. Um, you know, we have, uh, we've been studying in Romans and we've been talking about the genuine practice uh, of pure religion. And um, really, we're talking about our faith. We're talking about living that out and what that looks like. And, um, you know, the, the, my title this morning is, How Much Should Others Influence Us? How much should others influence us? Because influence is a powerful thing. You know, there's a couple of phrases that you don't have to teach. You'll never have to teach your toddler. Okay, one of them is, that's mine. You won't ever have to teach them that. They, they just know how to do that. And then the other one is, me first. Okay? And, and we all come by that honestly. Okay, we don't have to learn that from anyone uh, because of the fall of humanity in the very beginning. We all come pre-wired to put ourselves in the first place. I mean, you're never going to hear a three-year-old naturally say, you can have the last cookie. Or please, go ahead of me. No, they're scrambling to be first in line and they're taking whatever they can get and, and they don't really care. You know, when I was a kid... And, and acting selfishly towards one of my brothers. My mom might say something like this. She'd say, the way you spell joy is Jesus first, others next, and you last. And, um, you know, I always hated to hear that. Because in my heart, I knew she was right. But at that moment, it didn't seem like the way to be happy is to put myself last. But you see, the power of influence that we have with others is a tremendous responsibility. See, we are either influencing others towards Christ or away from Christ in everything that we do. It's a tremendous responsibility. You know, Jesus discusses this and he talks about it in figures of salt and light in Matthew 5, he says that Christians are the salt of the earth. That we are the salt of the earth. You know, according to one child's definition, salt is what makes food taste bad when you leave it out. You know, it's, it's one of those things that we, we really don't recognize it unless it's not there. But when it's not there, we recognize it right away. You know, salt also, as a preservative, it's used to keep food from decaying. And I would say to you this morning that God expects believers to give flavor and zest to life and to keep, and to be his instruments to keep the world from going bad. Okay? We have a job to do. We're to be that salt in our world. 
See, Christians are also the light of the world. And we can no more hide our influence than you could hide a city up on a hill. It just doesn't happen. We're to shine the light of the influence in such a manner that people seeing us will give glory to God. I mean, when was the last time someone seeing you gave glory to God? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're called to be. But my question this morning is, but how much should other people influence us? I mean, it's like the little boy who prayed, God, help me to do what you want me to do. But help me to do what everybody else wants me to do, too. You know, I I think that's a prayer that maybe God couldn't even answer. Because everybody has different expectations for us. And it's impossible to meet all of those expectations. But I want you to understand something. When we talk about discipleship, when we talk about influence in other people's lives, recognize that discipleship can be defined as seeing others being transformed while we ourselves are being transformed. So we're we're wanting to see others be transformed by Christ while we ourselves are still being transformed by Christ. Because the last time I checked, no one is batting a thousand. We all have issues in our lives that we're dealing with. No one is perfect. Therefore, we need the blood of Jesus to cover us. See, I remind you that in Romans chapter 14 and 15, Paul is teaching how a person who is being transformed by the renewing of their mind should demonstrate this in an attitude toward those whom they disagree with or hold a different value. I think this is important because as we see this, we don't need to be divided among ourselves. We're all on the same team. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I remind you also, this morning I want to remind you of some things. Uh, If you've never heard them before, then I'm, I'm leading you in that and probably having some influence in that. But otherwise, I'm reminding you and encouraging you, okay? So I remind you this morning of Cain. You remember Cain and, of Cain and Abel fame in uh, Genesis chapter 4. When he was asked where his brother Abel was, he responded, Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? The New Century Version says, I don't know, is it my job to take care of my brother? You know, the the New Living Translation says this. Am I supposed to keep track of him everywhere he goes? And sometimes that's the attitude we have about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, is it my day to watch them today? It's not my job. But we know this about Cain. Cain was a careless worshiper. He was an angry son, he was a murderer, and he was a ruthless wanderer. So knowing his history, it would be safe in hearing his opinion about something and then going the other way. 
Okay? There are individuals, when we look at their history, we probably could listen to their opinion, but then we need to do the, the opposite. You know people like that, and so do I. They don't make good choices. How much should we be influenced by those around us? See, the world says, am I my brother's keeper? Questioning that almost in a negative connotation. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, is that my job? Is that my responsibility? But as believers, we should be saying, I am my brother's keeper. See, there's a tremendous responsibility when we talk about influence. Because we know the truth of God's word. We know the difference between good and evil. We know what his word says. And so therefore we have influence and we should accept that responsibility and say that I am my brother's keeper. I mean, we need to learn how to care for one another. Since we're all relatives in this life and in the life to come. See, Paul encourages in Romans 15, I want to I read uh, verses 1 through 7 in, in Romans chapter 15. And he encourages that, that we are to be eager to do good to our neighbors in the spirit of Christ. And this is what he says beginning in verse 1. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to, re, is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Loving Father, I thank you for your word, and I I ask God that your Holy Spirit would just guide us into your truth. Father, that you would burn it into our hearts. Father, that we would see the areas where we're not being perfect. The areas where we could use some, some strength. The areas where we fall short. Father, that your Holy Spirit would reveal that to us. And that in this time and in this place, Father, we could commit those weaknesses to you. And God, that you would do a great work transforming each of our hearts. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as believers, we are expected to and will inconvenience ourselves to help others. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes when we feel selfish or we don't want to do something. And, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that people do exactly what they choose to do. 
If people really wanted to come to church this morning, they would be here. They would set their alarm, they would get up, they would be here. If they don't want to come to church, they're not going to be here. Because they're going to have something else to do. They're going to find something to do that. But as believers, we are expected to and will inconvenience ourselves in order to help others. And I think this is important. Because a lot of times, we don't want to be inconvenienced for nothing. Don't inconvenience me. Don't obligate me. Don't don't expect me to do that. It is evident, however, that we cannot do everything that everybody wants us to do. We just can't do it. It's not humanly possible. But the reality is this. We tend to like disputing doctrine with each other more than we like gathering around the cross. We like to argue about things. We like to say, well, this is what I believe, and this is where this is at, and and you should believe just like I do. You see, the problem that we have in our nation is we don't give other people the benefit of the doubt. We're not trying to have a dialogue with them. All we want to tell them is that they are wrong. You see, I think this is hugely important in in the scenario that we find ourselves. So how much should we be influenced by others? You see, understand this, that some people will try to use you for evil purposes. If you turn over with me to Psalm 1, uh, verse 1, the psalmist writes this. He says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But note that progression there. He says, How blessed is the man who does not walk, nor stand, nor sit. He's talking about being in their council, listening to them. He's talking about um, walking with them in their path. He's talking about being seated with them. And he's talking about the wicked. He's talking about sinners. He's talking about scoffers. Those who do not want or are not pleased or do not care anything about knowing God in a personal way. He says, how blessed is the man who doesn't hang out with them. How blessed is the person who doesn't hang out with with them. You know, we must first say no to the wicked if we don't want to end up hanging out with them. Because that's what will happen. And you see, those involved in evil always want company. See, if someone is cheating, they want someone else to cheat with them. If someone is doing something they shouldn't be doing, they want somebody doing it along with them. Because they don't want to be the only one. They don't want to be just the the, the only person. But, But notice Paul's... As he concluded his indictment of of sinners, in Romans 1, this is what he said. Verse 32. He said, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Be very careful about who you allow to influence you. 
You see, we must not be influenced to do evil, especially if it's our desire to please others. I mean, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we desire is other people's approval? And so we get their approval when we join in with them in what they are doing. But what happens with that is Paul says those who do those things are worthy of death. Even those who give hearty approval to it. And I I, I read that and, and I mean it just goes right through me. Because how much should we accommodate our actions to the consciences of others? Just because someone else says, well, Ridge, you're, you're just, you know, a, a square. I think that's a square. Or, you know, you're not any fun. You're, a, you're no fuddy-duddy. Or you're, you're just a, a stick in the mud. They want you to come and participate with them in that evil so that they're not alone in that evil. But somehow we have to stand firm. We have to turn that away. So look at what Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 15. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. See, mature believers ought to help strengthen the faith of younger believers. Those of us who have walked with the Lord for many years should continue to strengthen the younger believers that are now coming to Christ. But many times we want to judge, we want to criticize, we want to push aside. But notice what he says here. He says, now we who are strong, and the word there is dunatos. Dunatos. And it pertains to having the ability to perform some function by virtue of an inherent ability and resources. In other words, it comes from within. And, and, and I love this because it's the attribute of being capable or competent, including in some uses political power or influence. This word strong is the same word that is used in Mary's Magnificat where she calls him the mighty one because he has that ability within to make it happen. And really that's what what he's saying. Those, now we who are strong, we who have that ability to perform this function ought to, and that word ought means to owe something to someone. And it literally, it speaks of financial indebtedness. Meaning that we have a debt to one another. Those of us who are strong have that inherent ability to help. Then then we owe this to others. And it says here to bear. Which really means to, to pick up like you're carrying a pitcher of water. But it also means literally and figuratively to carry the cross. Literally and figuratively. You know, we ought to bear, we ought to pick up and carry the weaknesses of those without strength and not just because, excuse me, and not just please ourselves. 
See, Paul is referring here to the failures, the, the, the temptations, the testings, the trials. And he's telling all of us that as believers, we should not be standing off in the distance and criticizing But rather we should run, we should fly to the side of our brother and sister who is in trouble and help them in every possible way. What do you need? What can I help with? What can I do to help you? He's talking about those of us who are strong. Maybe you're not going through a crisis at the moment, but maybe someone else is. As a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ, it's not okay to stand back and criticize or to judge while a brother or sister is in the storm of their life. See, nothing speaks to sacrificing ourselves more than when we see a need to fly to that need and meet that need and help that brother or sister through that tough time. Do we really love them if we do nothing? How is that love? Standing back and watching that happen. And I asked you the question this morning, how are you doing with the call to bear the weaknesses and burdens of our brothers and sisters? Because many times we don't want to get involved. You know why? Because it's messy. Because it's going to cost us something. Because it's going to inconvenience us. We may have to stay up late. We may have to get up early. We may have to work harder than we want to. But get over it. That's your brother or sister in Christ. Their relatives, their family. You take care of your family. That's what you do. See, bear does not mean putting up with by foregrudging or forbearing, but with an attitude of maybe begrudging them. You know, I don't know why they have to need this today. I don't know why I have to do this. And folks, the reason that I'm telling you this and the reason that I'm bringing this out is because I am guilty. I don't have this perfectly down. I have many shortcomings of my own. But I recognize, hey, if I need to hear this, if this is what the Holy Spirit is giving me, then maybe we all need to hear this. See, this word bear means to carry along the weak like a mother or father would carry along a child who is ill and taking care of them in love, in tenderness, in understanding, and in care. It means don't get angry with them. Don't defy them. Don't cut them off from your love and concern. But try to help them and patiently instruct them and edify them for their own good. Because someday they may be strong just like we are. And we don't want to be guilty of shooting our wounded they don't need your criticism. They, don't, they, they need your instruction. They need your help. They, they don't need neglect. They need your attention. But you see, all of this that Paul is talking about in, in Romans 15 goes back to what he started in Romans 12. 
Because only after we have presented ourselves to God as a living sacrifice will we carry out with delight rather than drudgery. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any of that. It's about Him. But you see, the strength that we have is for service. It's not for status. And I just have to say this. As you're bringing young believers along, please don't deliberately engage young Christians in arguments about difficult theological positions. Or obscure Bible passages. What they need needs to be clear and what they need needs to be meat. They don't need to be caught up in all the rabbit trails that nobody has ever been able to answer. But sometimes in our desire to show ourselves as being smart, we come up with these things and we put them out there and we confuse young believers. Don't do that. Don't do that. Walk with them. Give them exactly what they need. You know, we love them so much and we want to help them towards maturity. And so therefore we bring to them the highest good. Which is the word of God and the will of God. We teach that to them towards maturity. But in order to do that, we've got to stay close enough to them. So that we can reach out and help them. And give them a little steadying when it's needed. It's kind of like when I was teaching my children how to ride a bike. I mean, first, I held them up as they sat on the bike. You remember that first time they sat on the bike and they were so excited. They felt like they were on top of the world. They were, they were so tall up there sitting on their bike, so proud. And then as they began to learn how to balance and to pedal the bike, I just kept a steady hand there in place with a light touch. And corrected the beginnings of a fall. And then pretty soon I ran alongside them. Helping them. Helping them to, to, and, and encouraging them to, to gain confidence in staying upright. And then I watched and I cheered. As they took off on their own. Yeah. I cleaned up a few cuts. Sent them out again. And then I watched them ride off on their own. Confident. Stronger, and I helped. Folks, that's what it's like as we disciple others. We don't just share Christ with them, we share what it means to live a life following Christ. That's discipleship. You know, the urgent question in Paul's day was whether a believer should eat meat that had been offered to idols. And you know, the Old Testament codes of clean and unclean, which were probably sanitary codes to begin with, before they acquired the religious significance, they've been done away with in Christ. I mean, in verse 14, Paul says, I know and am convinced, excuse me, of chapter 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. See, there's no religious reason why we ought not to eat anything that agrees with our digestion. 
It's all cleansed by God. But if the food is harmful, then the concern for our health is a valid reason for abstaining. See, Paul knew that in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of these things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. He goes on and, 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 and he knew that the meat had not been hurt in the way it had been offered to an idol. And he advised believers actually to buy foods in the market and, and, and to not ask questions as to whether it had been offered to idols or not. And in, in chapter 10, verse 25, he says this. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. See... The people were, were saying, well, that meat's been sacrificed to idols. You can't eat it. And they were causing others to, to stumble over that. And he's saying, just buy the meat that you desire and eat it with, with a clean conscience, knowing that there's really no such thing as any other little g gods. There's only one true God. These people are worshiping something they don't even know. If you want that, then buy that and don't let it sear your conscience. See, if you're invited to a feast, don't raise any questions. If, however, there are those who had questions of conscience, Christians were not to flaunt their freedom, nor to encourage them to do what their consciences condemned. For if they thought it was wrong to eat it, then for him or her, it was wrong. See, for this reason, we don't want to do anything that would cause our brother or sister to stumble. And if you want Paul's arguments on that, if you read in chapter 14 of Romans and in 1 Corinthians 10, they will repay careful reading. The second illustration that Paul uses in this passage is he, he used talking about the observing of certain days and seasons. And he confronted this problem in his letter to Galatians, uh, to the Galatians. You know, I know this is kind of technical right now, and I don't know why my stuff here is popping. But I hope it's not too big a distraction for you. But when people insist on observing certain days, feasts, and so on in order to be Christians, what they're doing is they're in grave danger of turning salvation away from grace, towards salvation by works or ceremonies. And I want you to know something. This is a serious error, and it must be resisted. See, Paul later, he was developing his reasoning in uh, Colossians 2, that, that basically that Christ nailed to the cross the, the necessity of ceremonial observances. If you look in Colossians 2, um, verse 16, he says... Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance, the body, belongs to Christ. Be judging other people, especially young believers who are coming in and trying to figure out what a life of discipleship is to look like. 
See, this principle can be very difficult to apply. And I'm going to bring it home here in just a moment. But to know how far we should allow others to influence us is difficult at best. I mean, we wish Paul were here. We wish uh, he would be here so we could find out what he thinks about it. But Paul seemed to be offended. And he, he used to, excuse me, he used to be willing to offend the views of others if it was based on principle. You remember when the Judaizers, they came and they insisted that the Gentiles be circumcised in order for them to be called Christians, to become a Christian. They had to be circumcised and they must keep the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And Paul vigorously opposed them. He said, they've been saved by grace just like we have. Why are you putting all of these other regulations on them? And folks, that's what happens. Is many times people that that have grown up in something, they want to put that on other people. They want to say, you have to do this and you have to do that in order to be a Christian. But I want you to understand something. Our salvation is by Christ alone. It's by grace alone. By faith alone. Okay? And and I I recognize, and and the reason that I, I say this is because when I was a kid, I grew up with all the rules. I was a Baptist preacher's son. Okay? We had all the rules. But I want you to understand something. That rules without relationship can lead to rebellion. My heart is broken because we had all the rules. We had so many rules that most of the fun was taken out of life. I say that because, yes, I had Christian parents. I had a godly home. And with all the respect that I have in my body, I say I would not trade that for anything. But I also have two brothers that when they left home, they left their religion behind. In raising my own children, I don't mind losing a battle here and there, but I don't want to lose the war. We had all the rules. We were told continuously to avoid every appearance of evil. So much to the point that we were not allowed to even have a deck of cards in our home. Period. But here's what I've discovered. Playing cards in and of themselves aren't inherently evil. After living six years in Reno, Nevada, after seeing the broken homes and lives, I better understand some of the problems and some of the addictions that go along with gambling. But the cards in and of themselves are not evil. Rather, it's, when the, it's within the heart of every human being where the evil is crouching at the door. Scripture tells us that the human heart is wicked above all things. So here are some conclusions, some takeaways, if you will. 
Just remember this. We must each give an account of ourselves before God. We will seek to win others to Christ and to disciple them to follow Christ. We will not willfully put a stumbling block in the way of another. We will be sensitive to the opinions of others. We will be sensitive to the opinions of others. And we cannot allow legalistic Christians to influence us too much. Else when we please them, we alienate others from the gospel. See, I like Ruth Graham's philosophy. She said this regarding marriage. She said, if two people agree on everything, then one of them isn't needed. What I'm saying is it's not about agreeing on everything or even coming to the same conclusions. What I'm talking about is the difference between unity and uniformity. I don't want everybody to be just like me. I don't want you to believe everything just like me. But what Paul is talking about is unity of perspective. Think. Think as Christ thinks. Take on his values and his priorities. Because unity produces a symphony of praise. I mean, in a choir, there's many different voices. There's sopranos. There's tenors. There's baritones. There's basses. Different parts, but different pitches, but beautiful harmony. The application is this. In following Christ's example, we who are strong in the Lord should not live selfishly, but sacrificially to build others up. We're here for a reason. And God has us here in this place at this time to see a great work move forward for Him. To see a great harvest of souls. To see an end gathering. But it's going to take our sacrificial giving and living in order to see that happen. We love God. And we love others. We use logic and discernment. And we will seek to sustain our own positions. But in the long run, we will serve the cause of Christ better by being loyal to the highest that we know. The Word and the will of God. Not someone else's opinion about what we think. That's Paul's point. Let's pray. Loving Father, I ask that in this moment, in this time, Father, that you would take your word and, Father, filter out the distractions. Father, that you would just speak clearly to each of our hearts. Father, we know that you are a great and mighty God. 
And we know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to your glory. And Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit, even now, would help us as we just come to you, Lord, and confess our own inadequacies, our own shortcomings, our own things that that are problematic for us, that we keep tripping over, that we want to lay on everybody else. Because, Father, we've been playing the blame game a long time. And, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts, that we would recognize, Father, that there are those that should influence us, And there are those that we should not listen to. Father, that your Holy Spirit would give us discernment in that. That there would be a great outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon your people. Upon the church. And that, Father, we would repent of the things that we know are not right. Lord, I pray for that this morning. In this place as we continue to focus on you, Father, may you challenge our hearts to be more than we are, to be what you call us to be, the salt and light that is so desperately needed in our world. Guide us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.